Good morning, friends. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your presence uh, here in our midst. Thank you for your presence within us. Thank you, Father, for, for putting us in Christ. Thank you for the privilege of being a member of the body of Christ. And that, um, Jesus, you said that this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, who you sent. And that's our prayer, Lord, that we might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, who you've sent. Amen. I lean not on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. I lean not on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. I give it all to you, God, trusting that you'll make something beautiful out of me. I give it all to you, God, trusting that you'll make something beautiful out of me.
standing. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. And I search the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied here in your
And I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hand. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing the goodness of God. Thank you. 
to get that through our heads and into our heart. I guess I'm you. done. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. He could still hear it regardless of whether you were still amplified. Amen. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you all. I know some of you ladies got a chance to hang out yesterday morning, and for those of you who made it, I love that you did. Um, gentlemen, we have our men's breakfast coming up, not next Saturday, as I said last weekend, but the Saturday after February 26th. I hope you'll join us at 7 a.m. Uh, because just getting to connect, share what's going on in our lives, pray for one another is such an important part of what doing life together looks like. And I know that a lot of you have come up to me already this morning and said, hey, I know that you sent out an email. I sent out an email earlier this week giving an update on Pastor Jeff that he had gotten sick, his sickness ultimately kind of pushed his kidneys to the point where he needed to go on dialysis. And so now he is back home, he's had his third round of dialysis, and it has absolutely changed the way he feels in a really positive way. I know numbers don't mean a lot to you guys, but he was in the mid-sevens, which is really not a good place to be, and it pushed him back down below a four. So the dialysis is working. He has been... He, he can't respond to the, he told me a couple, yesterday, he goes, I have never been a part of a community that is as loving as this community. I am overwhelmed with the amount of text messages and emails I'm getting. I can't respond to any of them, but I feel so loved, and I know that I'm being prayed for. So guys, thank you for loving so well, and I know he's not the only one who experiences that but it's making a difference. So he hopefully will be here next week. In fact, he's scheduled to teach next week, so I'm, my guess is that we will be seeing him, God willing. But he's at home with us, and so if you're online, you probably are already having conversations with him in that. Um, all that, now I'm gonna invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter three because we are continuing our journey through this not-so-scary book of the Bible as we're finding out. It's not terrifying as many of us have, have been led to believe. In fact, it's incredibly relevant and incredibly encouraging to us in the state that we find ourselves in. Even though it may have been written to people in a different context 2,000 years ago, it is absolutely speaking into the context we find ourselves in here in 2022. Today, we're going to be doing what, similar to what Bill did, we're going to be looking at two messages to two different churches. Can we throw uh, the map up on the screen for just a moment? 
So this is the lay of the land for those of you who like to have in your mind what's going on. Remember, John, who's the one who ultimately is writing down the visions that he's seeing and writing down the messages that Jesus is dictating for him. John is sitting on an island down in the bottom right corner. It's called Patmos. It's a prison island. He's there because he refuses to bend a knee and worship Caesar Domitian. And so he's been sent there to kind of rot and just be quiet. While he's there, he has an encounter with Jesus. Jesus begins to peel back the layers of what he can see to reveal what's going on underneath. And today we're going to look at letters written to two cities that are really close together. They're the churches that are right in the middle, Sardis and Philadelphia. Most of you have eyesight like me. You can't read this. Just know that these two cities are separated by a, a mountain range, but they are in very close proximity to one another. And the soil in which these two churches, Sardis and Philadelphia, the soil out of which these two churches are growing is very similar, and it's very rocky. They are being hard-pressed on many, many directions, hard-pressed from those who are nationalistically zealous for Rome and say, hey, Caesar is our Savior, Caesar is our Lord, just Take the pinch of incense and declare Caesar is Lord and you're good. And then on the other hand, you've got the Jewish pressure, the, the social pressure to not rock the boat, not make waves, and quite honestly, just shut up about Jesus. He's a crucified carpenter. He's nothing more. And that pressure is coming at both of them. But how they're responding, how these two churches are responding is radically different. So the messages that Jesus has for these two churches is radically different. We're going to read them one at a time and unpack them a little bit. So let's go ahead and begin uh, in chapter 3, verse 1 of Revelation. To the angel of the church of Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits or the, the complete spirit. Number seven is always a, a number of completion. So the complete spirit of God and the seven stars, which are the seven angels, as we found out of those seven churches. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast to it and repent, turn and walk the other way. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you won't know at what time I will come to you. Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels, whoever has ears. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is not the kind of message you want to hear from Jesus. It's pretty harsh. And in order to understand why it sounds so harsh, let's back up and just ask ourselves, well, what's going on in Sardis that prompts Jesus to say what he says to them? So the church in Sardis is the largest of the seven churches that, he, that Jesus sends a message to. In first century terms, they would be the first century equivalent of a megachurch. They have 
their, their gatherings are really well attended. Their finances are really stable. They're doing lots of projects and good things in the city. If you were to do a church growth seminar, if you were to have like this church growth thing, the pastors in Sardis would be the keynote speakers. Because from all accounts of how we typically determine whether a church is successful, right? We count nickels and noses, or bucks in the offering and butts in the seats, right? By those statistics, I'm sorry, I guess I said the B word, I'm sorry. By those, by those metrics, the church in Sardis was incredibly successful. But Jesus doesn't use those metrics to determine whether or not a church is successful, he goes on in the second half of the first verse. I know your deeds. Guys, I know you. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Ouch! How, why, why is he saying that? Well, because the church in Sardis isn't experiencing the kind of pressure from the world that the other six churches have been experiencing. The reason is not because Jesus is protecting them from that pressure. The reason is because they're not pushing back against the pressure of the world to conform. The church in Sardis was the quintessential go-along-to-get-along kind of church. When people are saying, you got to worship Caesar and Jesus, they're like, ah, yeah, what's the big deal of taking the pinch of incense? When, when people begin to come into the church and say, hey, you know, in these other pagan religions, we have these sexual practices where we're able to connect with uh, other, you know, uh, temple prostitutes. And there's really no problem. And Jesus doesn't really mind, does he? Ah, oh, it's not a big deal. When, when Jews are saying, hey, don't make waves. Don't mess up our precarious standing to Rome by by being outspoken about your commitment to Jesus, they're like, okay. And because they weren't pushing back, they weren't experiencing pressure. To put it another way, the church in Sardis was not being persecuted simply because they were, not, they were too innocuous to be worth persecuting. Ouch! I pray that words like that would never be spoken of our church community. But I also confess that the temptation to conform to the pressures of the world, the temptation not to speak up when we see injustice, the temptation not to speak up or to, to when, when we see the world around us declaring something that God calls a sin, celebrating it, to not Stand up and say, I can't celebrate that with you. I get the reason why it's so tempting not to speak up and not to make waves. Because if you speak up, you can be declared as judgmental. You can be called a bigot. You can be called hateful. Better not to speak up at all. And, the, and Christ followers in Sardis... We're absolutely staying silent. More than that, they weren't even pushing back against the pressure of the world. They were going with it. Like I said a couple weeks ago, 
The only fish that feel the pressure of the river are the ones that swim against it. But when you just float with the river, you don't feel any pressure. We call those fish dead fish. They just go with the flow. And that's what Jesus says of the church in Sardis. You have an appearance of being alive, but you're really dead. And if that's where the message ended, (laughs) that would be a pretty abrupt and pretty awful message, but thankfully it doesn't stop there. Because even though they are dead, even though they have been conformed by the pattern of the world, rather than following Jesus and standing against the pressure of the world, it's not too late. And so Jesus' next words, while they might sound harsh, are actually incredibly gracious because what it tells us is there's still hope So he says in verse 3, wake up! I I, I get the picture of a father watching their child sleepwalking towards the stairs. And be like, hey! You know, like any loving parent would raise their voice and say, stop! Before you get injured. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Remember what I taught you. Hold to it fastly and repent. Turn from the ways you've been living. In other words, he gives like five different commands here. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. It's not too late. Remember what I've taught you and hold to it. In other words, begin to live out of what I have taught you. Jesus put it this way. If you're really my disciple then you'll do what I say. And then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So guys, don't just pay lip service. Don't just go, oh yeah, he said this, but actually act out of that. And that's going to require you to turn from the way you have been living. And then he goes on. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I come to you. Now, those words would have meant something specifically to believers in the the city of Sardis. Because, you see, Sardis was a really well-defended city. It was on a mountaintop. So it had never been conquered by an army that came and laid siege to that city. But two times in its history, the city of Sardis had been conquered because the people got too comfortable and the watchmen stopped watching And somebody climbed up the side of the Acropolis, snuck down and opened up the gates and let the enemy armies in. Two times in their history, they had been conquered, not by an army coming against them, but by their own complacency. We are at our most vulnerable when we are comfortable and complacent, when we let our guard down. When we think, God's with us, everything's good, we're fine, we let our guard down. And he's telling them, guys, wake up before it's too late. But not everybody, in the, in, not every believer had been pressed into the mold of the world around them. Not every believer was completely compromising themselves and being discipled more by their culture than they were by their faith in Jesus. There were some, he goes on, that continue to resist and are feeling the pressure. 
Verse 4, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white. The color white is symbolic of righteousness, of, of not being sullied by this world. So they will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. And the one who is victorious, in other words, the one who stands against the pressure to conform and does not bend a knee, the one who keeps their eyes focused on me and continues to follow me even when the world says, no, bend a knee to the petty tyrants of this world. The one who is victorious will also be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that last part, that last promise that somebody who stands against the conforming pressure of the world, that Jesus won't blot their name from the book of life, but will affirm that person's name in the, in the presence of his Father seems to insinuate an inverse of it. That for those who do not, their names will be blotted. And that, that raises a really thorny issue. Quite honestly, I hear that and I get uncomfortable. And my temptation as a pastor is to gloss right over it and go to other passages that are easier to explain so we can just ignore it. But I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I did that. And the point of Revelation is to begin to peel back what we see and understand to begin to challenge our perspective. And so I want to lean in here this morning, even if it might be uncomfortable. What we're getting at here is we're beginning to rub up against a concept that many of you have been raised to hold on to as, as of utmost importance. And that is this idea of eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. Or if you were raised in a more reformed environment, it would be the last letter of the tulip, the perseverance of the saints. And the point is basically this. If you believe in Jesus and you pray a prayer, you're good. You're saved. Nothing else is required. And this, well, there's, there's, there is definitely truth to the fact that Jesus is greater than anything we will encounter and nothing can grasp us from his hands. That is absolutely true. Jesus said that in John chapter 10. But when we get in our minds that all we need to do is pray a prayer, and that's it, then here's what we do. We turn a relationship with Jesus into a transaction, a one-time momentary decision. Jesus, I believe, stamp my ticket to heaven. Okay, thank you very much. And then we go on living any way that we want. And the message that Jesus is saying here and over and over and over throughout Scripture is I am not content simply to be your Savior. I also want to be your Lord. And you can't have one without the other. Savior and Lord are like the inverse sides of a coin. You can't just have him be your savior and be the Lord of your life. You can't just have him be your savior and have a political party be the Lord of your life. You can't have him be savior and have somebody else be the Lord of your life. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15. I am a vine and you're a branch off of that vine. 
And if you abide in me or if you remain in me, you will bear fruit. It's a natural part of the abiding connection to one another. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you don't remain in me, if you don't remain connected to me, then you're like a a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. You see, praying a prayer, that's an important part of a journey, of any of our journeys. Each of us who have said yes to Jesus, we prayed a prayer, but to treat it like it's the finish line. Turns our relationship with Jesus into a transaction. Jesus is not okay with that. Jesus' invitation was always this, follow me. And that's the invitation that a discipler, a rabbi, would give to a disciple. Walk with me. Learn from me. Watch my example and emulate me. And as we do life together, you will begin to be shaped by our proximity and you'll become a greater reflection of me. And that's what, this, what, what Jesus was saying when he, went, when he was saying to his disciples, I'm a vine and you're the branches. He was trying to get at this necessary relationship. So let me, our God is a God of props, so let's use a prop. This, this is a branch off of a vine that covers the fence of my home. I cut it off this morning. This branch is kind of cool. It actually has fruit growing on it. I have no idea what kind of fruit it is, but there's fruit. So let me ask you a question. Is this branch alive? But it's green. It's got fruit. It may not be ripe fruit, but it's got fruit. Why isn't this branch alive? Because it's been severed from the vine, right? The moment that my shears went through this, this died. It may not look like it. It might take weeks before it's evident. But this branch died the moment it was separated from the life-giving power of the vine. And in the same way, Jesus says to believers living in Sardis, you might look alive, but you're dead. You have been... You have cut yourself off from me and chosen instead to find your identity in the affirmation of the people around you, in your attempts to, to remain comfortably cocooned from the pressure of the world, to avoid persecution, you're not following me. You're following something else. But the beauty of our Lord is that even when we are walking through life like this, it's not too late. He has the ability to graft us back in, which is why he then turns to them and says, wake up. Turn from the way you've been walking and the ones you've been following and the ones you have been emulating. Wake up and follow me. Come back to me. We're going to come back to this in a moment but I want to keep going. I want to unpack the next message to the other church. And then we're going to compare and contrast and we'll, draw, you know, we'll, we'll try to put a little bit of a bow on something that is admittedly a bit of a can of worms. But are we having fun yet? This is super fun, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about gardening. So, so, you know, I have a brown thumb. Some of you have green thumbs. Like everything I touch turns to dust. So single-handedly, like I am entropy. 
All right. To the church of Philadelphia, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. I know you're exhausted. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. That crown he's referring to as a victor's crown, somebody who finishes running the race. Like an Olympic medal, they would get crowns made out of, you know, vines. He's saying, hold on to me so that nobody takes your crown. To the one who is victorious, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, that's a very different message, isn't it? The tone is, is almost the exact opposite. The letter to the Church of Philadelphia is one of only two letters or two messages where there's no, like, I have this against you. So unlike the the letter to the Church of Sardis, which seems almost all I have this against you, this one is, I know you're tired, and I know you're discouraged, but you've been holding tightly to me, and you've been keeping your eyes firmly on me, and so I got you. I'm not going to let go of you. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on there in Philadelphia that prompted these words from Jesus. Believers in the city of Philadelphia were also feeling pressure, pressure to bend a knee to Caesar, but especially pressure from the Jews to stop making waves, to stop making an issue of their refusal to bend a knee to Caesar because the Jews are afraid that it's going to cost them their freedoms. Again, Christians were identified as kind of an offshoot from Judaism, so Jews were actually afraid that Christians kind of flexing their independence and their unwillingness to bend a knee to Caesar would cost them their freedoms to not have to bend a knee to Caesar. And so they would often tattle on Christians to the Roman authorities in order to kind of protect and preserve their own freedoms. In other words, they're doing the work of the enemy for him, which is why Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. They're not following me. They're not doing my bidding. They're doing the bidding of the enemy. And Jesus says, hey, if you continue, I know you're tired. I know your strength is sapped and it feels like you can't go on. And yet you are persevering. Yet you are holding tight to me. Rather than buckling at your knees and bending a knee to the pressure, you keeping your eyes fixed on me. And he affirms them for it. And he says, because of that, there's going to come a day 
where I, those, those people who, who are saying, you don't belong, you can't be part of us, you're not allowed in the synagogue, who are basically trying to excise them out of the kingdom of God, saying, you're not a true Jew, you're not a true child of God. Jesus says, there's going to come a day where they are going to be forced to apologize and to admit that I loved you. But what's all this talk about the keys of David and an open door? What does that mean? The key, remember, keys in Revelation talk about authority. And Jesus is basically saying, I hold the authority over the entire house of David, which is shorthand for the kingdom of God, a kingdom that would never end. The Jews felt like they had the right to declare who was in and who was out, that they could shut and lock their doors in the face of any of these believers if they wanted to. And Jesus is saying, hey, they may think they have that authority, but they don't. I'm the one who holds the keys. I'm the one who opens doors and closes doors. I'm the one who determines who's in and who's out. So don't worry about them. They are going to have to eat some humble pie and, and acknowledge just how loved you are. Additionally, if you continue to hold on to me and you resist the pressure to bend a knee and submit and begin to be conformed to what people are telling you to do, but rather you submit and you follow me, then I will make you a pillar in the temple of God in the new Jerusalem. This would mean something to people living in Philadelphia because like many of the other cities that these churches reside in, there's a lot of temples and in those temples, people who were very dedicated to that temple or to that God would have their name etched into the pillar saying, this is a foundational member of this community. We do the same thing. Can we just show the, the picture? This is, this is a plaque that we put out on our uh, new ramp that we installed a couple years ago dedicated to Merv and his wife, Jean Drivey, and all the generations of faithful believers who have kind of set the foundation upon which we're building. We do the same thing. And Jesus points to that habit, that act, and he says, I will not only acknowledge you before my Father, I will not only require these individuals to admit that you are loved by me and fully accepted by me, but I will make you a mainstay, a pillar in the house of God. And by the way, there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. The entire city is the temple, and Jesus is the center of it. And he's basically saying, you will be a mainstay in the city of God in eternity. As Brad pointed out earlier before we started, Eternal life isn't just that you don't die. Eternal life is relationship with Jesus. And he's saying, you will have that eternal connection to me. You'll be a foundational member. Now, we could spend another hour teasing out details from the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. We'll spend a little bit more time unpacking it on Wednesday night for those of you who choose to join Bill and myself for that. But I want to acknowledge, I want to compare and contrast these two letters that we've now examined. On the surface, both of these letters, the, the, the churches in Sardis and Philadelphia could not be more different, right? As, as the tone of those two letters makes evident, they're very different church communities. Remember, Revelation is about peeling back the curtain and revealing that not as all as it seems. To believers in Sardis, they look alive, 
but they're really dead. They're, they, they may have what, the inkling of what looks like fruit. They're doing lots of good things, but really that fruit will never come to fruition, not without being reconnected to him. And, and conversely, believers in the church of Philadelphia look weak and at the end of their rope, but they are strong in Christ because they were staying, holding on to him. So in that sense, these two messages are diametrically opposed to one another. But when you dig out from under all of that to look at what Jesus is actually calling both church communities to do, in truth, he's calling them to exactly the same thing, just from different starting points. For those who have an appearance of being alive but are really dead, he says this in verse 3, wake up. Before it's too late, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember what, I've, what you've received and what you've heard. Don't just remember it. Hold fast to it. Obey it. And turn from the ways you've been living. Come back to me. Allow me to graft you back into the vine so you can go on living and so that this fruit will actually come to fruition. But to believers in Philadelphia who have been holding tightly to him, he says this. So different starting point, but the same call. Verse 11, I am coming soon. So what are they to do? Hold on to what you have. Don't let go of me. Don't walk away from me. Nobody can snatch you from my hands. But you can walk away from me and you can begin to serve other things and you can begin to live as if there's no relationship at all. And this brings us back to that whole question of eternal security. And I know it's a can of worms. And I know I'm, I'm like stepping into... We're going sacred cow tipping a little bit right now. But this is something that is important, be, not because I want to make you feel insecure. That is not my goal whatsoever. But rather I want to wake us up from what can ultimately become spiritual lethargy, where we feel like, hey, I'm good, so I don't have to try. I am haunted by words that Jesus says towards the end of his Sermon on the Mount, where he says, in, in the last days, there will be people who will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things for you? Don't you see the fruit of what we produced? And in the, in the grand scheme of things, I will say, go away from me, because I never knew you. The moment that we begin to think that praying a prayer is the finish line and we go on living as if we are not bought and paid for by another, that we are, are still our own and we can live any way that we want as opposed to submitting and being under the lordship of another, we have turned our relationship with Jesus into a transactional religion in that moment that we think it's just a transaction, we are severed from the vine. If we have no relationship, then we may look alive, but we are dying. We're already dead. But it's not too late, and I'm grateful for that. The invitation this morning is to relationship, not to religion. Not to a certain set of tenets that we can point to and say, well, I agree with that, and I did that, so I'm good and go on living any way we want. 
but rather to point to the one who is our Lord, who gave his life for us and say, follow him. Don't follow me. Don't follow Jeff. Don't follow Bill. Don't follow Diane. Don't follow Annie. Don't follow anybody but Jesus. We're doing our best, and the beauty is we get to do it together. And this, this is a topic that I know is kind of confusing and is really convoluted and deep. And I know that there are passages that we could point to and say, see, this builds a very clear box called the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. But then there are other verses, kind of like the one we see in the church of Sardis, where he says, those people who keep holding tight to me, I will never blot their name from the book of life. That see, and that's not the only one. It seemed to poke holes in that box. And one of the things I've come to realize is that we human beings have a tendency to build theological boxes to make sense of God. But those boxes don't limit God. They simply limit our understanding of God. And there are moments where we come upon a verse that goes, what do I do with this? And in that moment where it seems like this verse is suggesting that God even resides outside of that tight little theological box that we've built, we have a choice. Either we ignore the verse and we hold to our theological box and we, we part company with anybody who disagrees with us, or we step back and we say, God, what are you trying to show me about yourself? This transcendent God, what are you trying to show me? And so back in graduate school, when I had the opportunity to choose any topic I wanted to to write my dissertation on, I chose to write it on this question of eternal security because I kept running across verses that said one thing or another thing. And I was confused, and I wanted to understand it because this is a central tenet of our faith, at least for those of us who have been raised in a Baptist or a Reformed environment. And I spent six months and over a hundred pages grappling through scripture after scripture after scripture. And at the end of that six months, and at the end of those hundred plus pages, I was reading the book of Philippians one day. And I realized that Paul had come to the same conclusions that I was coming to. Only he was able to articulate it in about three paragraphs as opposed to 120 pages. And so what I want to do today is I want to end our conversation, or at least kind of land the plane for today, by reading Paul's articulation of what it means to follow Christ in this in-between time. If you will, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And I know that th today I am raising lots of questions, and I'm okay with that. I hope that your questions, you, I would love to process with you. Know that I've got lots of thoughts and it's, it's a can of worms, and it's going to be a fun conversation. They might be a little lengthy. And Bill and I on Wednesday night will engage this a little bit more for, for today. This is where I, if you ask me, what was your conclusion after all of that time and all of those words that you wrote? Here's my conclusion. It's the same conclusion that Paul came to as he was writing to a city where there were people saying, in order to have a relationship with God, in order to be saved... You've got to be circumcised. That was the, the hoop that they were creating. We might say today, in order to be saved, you've got to pray a prayer. Or, 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 or some would even say, you've got to pray a prayer and get baptized. Again, transactional religion as opposed to a living, breathing, fruit-bearing relationship. 
And this is how Paul responded to those individuals who were turning a relationship with Jesus into a religion, where you could just rest on your laurels of what you had done in the past and live any way that you wanted right now. He says this in chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in the second half of verse 4. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh and in our own abilities to save ourselves... I have more, and now he's going to give his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day. Already got, check that box. I'm of the people of Israel. I am an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, I was trained as a Pharisee. I know this book backwards and forwards. As for zeal, you want to know if I'm zealous for God? I persecuted the church. You can't get more zealous than that. And as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Checked every box. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the all-surpassing, or for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything, everything I could hang my hat on, everything I've done, my whole resume, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I've walked away from security of relationships. I've walked away from community. I've walked away from business relationships. I've walked away from things that were attractive from the world that said, find your solace in me. But I consider it all a a loss, an, a, a grateful loss for the all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider all of that garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, right? Not that I can build a ladder of rules and then climb up and say, I've arrived. Not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Paul would be the first to tell you that you cannot earn your salvation. You can't do enough good things to be secure. It is by grace we've been saved through faith. This is not in question. So I consider everything garbage that I might gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Jesus. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Does that sound good? Is that what you guys want? To know Jesus, to be found in Jesus, to basically basically finish the race and one day be resurrected in a new resurrected body that doesn't get COVID, that doesn't get cancer, that doesn't get tired, that doesn't get splinters, and say, now we get to spend eternity together. Does that sound good to you? Is that what you want? It's certainly what Paul wanted. But listen to verse 12, because here is where the posture shift happens. Not that I have already attain, obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal. Wait, Paul, you are the quintessential follower of Jesus. Don't tell me this. He says, not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived, as if it's something done in the past and now I can just go ahead and live off of what I've already done. But I press on. I keep pushing forward to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And in case you didn't hear him the first time, he tells us again, 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of this. I am not living as if I am so eternally secure that I can live any way that I want. But this one thing I do do, I continue to do. Forgetting what's behind, both what I've done, good, bad, and ugly, and pressing on towards what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I keep holding tightly to Jesus and following him as he leads me through this crazy, mixed up, sin-warped world. That's what I do. I keep holding tightly to him and watching as he bears fruit out of the fecal matter that this world throws at me. Like the fertilizer is plentiful and he just keeps producing fruit because I keep holding on to him. Verse 15, all of us then, who are mature followers of Jesus, should take such a view of things, should not rest on our laurels, not rest on something we've done, not rest on a one-time profession of faith, but keep pursuing Jesus and keep following him through the messiness. And when we stumble, getting back up, fixing our eyes on him, finding our identity in him, not in our job, not in what we've done, not in what we've accumulated, not in who we voted for, not in anything but him, not even in who wins the Super Bowl today. We don't care. It's all about Jesus. And all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, I love that he includes this, by the way. If on some point you think differently than that, that too God will make clear to you. But only let us live up to what we have already obtained. And what have we obtained? We have obtained Jesus. We get to have relationship with him. We don't have a, a religion. If this is a religion, we're wasting our time because religions are dead and religions are full of rights and all they are is dead. We have a relationship where we remain connected to him. And through his spirit's enablement, we who are messy produce fruit, fruit that lasts. My goal this morning is not to make you feel insecurity, insecure in Jesus' love for you. He loves you so much. We have crosses in our church to remind us of how much he loves us. My goal this morning is to remind you that he has invited you not to a religion where you have to say the right things, pay him lip service for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, and then you can go live any way that you want. He has invited you to an ongoing relationship with him where you follow him, you cling tightly to him. He produces fruit in your life and he gets the glory. And if you had not experienced that, if you identify a little bit with this slowly wilting branch that has been severed or disconnected or has never been connected to the vine, then although it's not the finish line, the starting line, is simply to confess that, to confess, Jesus, I need you. I keep trying to do things for you or I keep trying to make sense of my world without you, but I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Jesus, come back into my life or Jesus, come into my life for the first time. Jesus, help me to be restored back into relationship with you. I want to do life with you. I want to be shaped by my proximity to you. I want to wake up, and I want to see what you do in my life. I want to see the fruit you produce as only you can do. There's nothing magical about a prayer. 
It is simply an acknowledgement. In the same way that 17 years ago, I, said, I stood before my friends and my family and I looked at this woman across from me who was way better than me and I said, I do. That wasn't the finish line of my marriage. That was the starting point of my marriage. And every single day I get the opportunity to learn how much I don't know about what it means to be a husband. And I get grace upon grace upon grace. That's what the invitation is. Follow me. Do life with me. I love you. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so grateful that your grace is sufficient for our insufficiency. I'm so grateful for the ways you pursue us. I'm so grateful that even when we have severed ourselves from the vine and walked away and run after other things, you don't just stand back and say, well, have fun going over the edge of the cliff. You shout as you did to the believers in Smyrna, wake up! I'm so grateful that you call us back to you and you don't, that the energy in your voice is not anger. It's love for your kids that are going astray. And so in the ways in which we are going astray, in the ways in which we have been clinging to other things for our identity and our life, would you give us the discernment to recognize those? Holy Spirit, would you give us the strength to disconnect from those things and to anchor ourselves back through your grace, into you, Jesus. And as we prepare to walk out of the church today, thank you that you go with us, that we remain connected to you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the ways that you abide within us and you empower us to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Thank you that you are a relational God, not just an angry, legalistic traffic cop waiting for us to screw up so you can slap us with the law. Thank you for the ways you love us. Thank you for the ways you pursue us. Thank you for your patience in our stumbling. I pray that out of our confidence in your love, we would be able to reflect that love to others as our connection to you bears fruit that lasts. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. I don't know about you, but as we go into a time of response, I just, I just want to spend some time in his, in his presence. And if you want to just kind of sit there and have a conversation with him, or if you want to come down in the front here and get down on your knees, sometimes our hearts have to follow the posture of our body. If you want to stand up and raise your hands, you can. If you want to come and kneel down, you can. But let's have, some, let's have some time of reconnecting to the vine.
What a beautiful, absolutely apropos song for us to sing. My prayer is that you don't come here or you don't open your Bible simply so that you can learn more intellectual head knowledge. My prayer is that when you step foot in this place, it's not like he's only here, but I pray that when we come together, we would have an encounter with the living God who loves us. Doesn't just stand with legalistic posture waiting for us to screw up. I pray that we would not seek greater head knowledge, but that we would seek the living God. And I pray that when people encounter us, they wouldn't encounter little legalists who are looking for people screwing up. But because of our connection to our Lord, they would experience fruit like a love that transcends circumstances and a peace in the midst of messiness. Patience for really irritating people. Kindness, even when it's not reciprocated. Goodness, gentleness, even for us with a Y chromosome. And self-control. That's the kind of fruit that our connection to the vine, that our, the Holy Spirit's empowerment produces in us. That's what I pray our lives would produce, not so that we can prove that we're enough, that we're good enough. He's already shown us that we're good enough. Just look at the cross. That's what he thinks of you. And he doesn't say, stand far off until you clean yourself up and then you can come home. He says, come home and let me clean you up. You guys get to be ambassadors of that good message. Because it's not just good news for us. It's good news for other imperfect imperfect image bearers of God that live all around us, live right around you, that you rub shoulders with constantly. You get to be the ambassadors of that good news. May your lives preach it. And would you use words if necessary? If, there's, if, if there are things that you are holding on to, that are weighing you down, things that we can join you in praying. And I ask that you would just write them down on a connection card. There's some in the seat back in front of you. Or if you're at home, you can just email those prayer requests to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If you have questions that today stirred up, good. I hope so. You can write those down. I would love to engage with you. I know Pastor Bill would as well. If as a part of your worship you want to give, you can do so in the, in the boxes in the back or you can give online at lighthousecommunity.com. But Lighthouse, my family, we're sons and daughters of God. That means that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and that's really fun. I love getting to do life with you. I trade it up. But you are the church. This building is not. Now go be the church.